Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Youth Takeover Week continues for us here at Forum and all over KQED. Today, we have a show produced by Ryan Heshmati, a second-generation Iranian-American who, like many people across the diaspora, followed the Masa Amini protests in Iran with great interest. Here we are, though, more than six months after the uprising began, and it's unclear whether there will be fundamental change in Iran. Ryan, why don't you tell us who we're going to have on the show today to help us really process this situation? We're joined by a young woman who lived in Iran until a couple of years ago, an artist working with the symbolism of hair, and Persis Karim, head of the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at SF State. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This morning, during Youth Takeover here at KQED, we're joined by Ryan Hashmati, a second-generation Iranian-American and a sophomore at Saratoga High School. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So you produced this show, and from the very beginning, you knew you wanted to do a show on how artists and other Iranians in the Bay Area were responding to the protests. Why was it important for you to produce a show about the uprising? I think being so far away from Iran, like physically and never having that opportunity to make that kind of connection, it was really important for me to try to bridge that gap in other ways. And the Bay Area has this rich community of Iranian Americans. And I thought that's a great place to explore and tap into. Yeah. How else have you tried to sort of understand, you know, where your family and your ancestors came from? I, I was obsessed with documentaries from a really young age. I mean, really, I hijacked the family room. It was just documentary after documentary because I, I wanted to understand, you know, not only where we are, but how we got there. Understanding, you know, before the revolution, the coup, uh, 1979, the revolution there and, you know, the events afterward. I think I, I understood that you had to understand the past to understand how you got to where you were. Yeah. What do you think Americans like misunderstand most about that history you just described? I, I think that because of events like the hostage crisis, Iran has been looked at as a very hostile, you know, enemy or an adversary. But um, there is a distinction between the individuals, the culture of the people in Iran and the government. And I think making that distinction is key to understanding that country. Yeah. So, you know, this has been a movement led by and centering women. So how have you tried to connect with and understand what's been happening as a young man in this country? From a really young age, you know, being in this community of Iranian Americans, you heard stories just like Massa Amini's. You know, 40 years ago, the same things were happening. People being arrested because their hijab was too loose or because they were walking with a boy at night. And I think 
once you realize, you know, this has been 40 years of this application toward so many people. This is a universal experience. I felt like, well, I should speak with more people about this and get an even greater understanding. Hmm. How have the other young people around, you know, in high school or activities you're doing, how have they responded to this moment in Iran? Do you feel like they've connected to the struggle or no? I, I think it's really hard to understand Iran without doing so much research. And for that, I think a lot of it has been more cursory on social media. Uh, and I do think that's important, you know, getting that support. And I, I really think there have been so many examples of things that have really caught the eye of the public. Uh, and that is where I think my generation has seen it. They've seen it on Instagram, on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in your first panel member. Um, we're going to call her Shade. Um, she moved here uh, from Iran for education a couple years ago, and we're using a pseudonym here to um, you know, protect her identity. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So maybe you can tell us just a little bit about your story. You left Iran pretty recently. Um, how have you felt like looking at these protests from, uh, from the U.S.? Um, yeah, so I had a lot of emotions come up. Um, it was obviously very intense. I wish I was there um, all the time when mm-hmm. this was happening. Um, and I was just so sad to see so many people pay such um, big prices. But also I was so um, proud to be um, Iranian and see like their courage. And yeah, I'm just so proud of the, yeah. the fighters. When you left, was there a sense that this kind of uh, protest and uprising was possible? Um, yeah, because there were always uh, protests going on. Um, when I was in my university in Iran, there were there would be occasional um, protests, and I would attend them. And yeah, there's like there was this saying in all of like whenever any like in any group of people that you would sit there was always someone like saying this sentence uh, when when the regime goes away (laughs) Um, so yeah we were always waiting for this but I think we never expected I never expected it to be so like beautiful and courageous and like Mm -hmm. so like women being in the center I I guess I didn't picture it would be like this Had you experienced any of the kind of harassment from the morality police that uh, people became familiar with through Masamini's story? Yeah, I was arrested by the morality police twice, actually, and I went to the uh, detention centers. Uh, so, yeah, I have firsthand experience with it. Could you talk more about that? I mean, is that a normalized situation for Iran? When you talk to many women, is that something you universally hear? Yeah, I was detained by the morality police. Uh, Yeah, sadly, it was very normalized. And I think we just recently realized, uh, like, uh, collectively that it's not a normal thing to just walk down the street and be detained because you're, like, wearing your hijab too loose or something. But, Mm. yeah, it's, it's... Did I answer your question? Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, my perception is that the protests have slowed or even stopped inside Iran. Is that accurate? Or is it more that Western media and activists are having a difficult time getting those stories out of the country? Mm -hmm. I think it's more of the second. Um, What I think is that it changed to a different phase. So um, it's not more like people in the streets right now, but uh, like when you walk in the streets... I have been talking to my friends and family members and they say that there are so many women who aren't wearing any hijab and that is such a major change and it's still what 
all of us, like both in the diaspora and in Iran, it's all we think about, it's all we talk about. So it's not, I think it's just a different phase. It's not that it, it has died or anything. Are you thinking about going back anytime soon? Are you trying to wrap up what you're doing here and then you'll head back? Or do you think you're going to stay here? I think I will stay some, a few more years and then I definitely I'm going to go back. Go back yeah. um, we are talking with Bay Area Iranians about the protests that began in September after the in-custody death of Masa Amini. This show was produced by Ryan Hashmati, second-generation Iranian, a sophomore at Saratoga High School, who uh, joins us here this morning. We also have Shide. She moved here from Iran for education a couple years ago. And we want to add another guest to our panel. Persis Karim is a poet, an essayist, and director for the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So I want you to give us a little bit of the context for the, the differences between this movement and those in recent history, like, say, in 2009, Green Revolution, or you know, 2019. Um, well, I think we can go even further back than 2009 because on International Women's Day, March 8th, uh, 1979, women flooded the streets of Tehran when there was a call to have the mandatory hijab. So we can look at what's taken place in September 2022 as part of a longer continuum of protests, not just about the hijab, but that is where it began, and I think the young women in Iran are echoing that same cry for bodily autonomy and freedom. Um, and I think one of the things that um, binds this movement to other earlier moments that are not necessarily women-centered are uh, frustration with the lack of personal freedoms, uh, a real attention to the ways in which the regime in Iran has diverted the resources of its country to policing its own population as well as policing in the region, and then um, a general frustration with the economic situation in Iran. And I think one of the things that's unique about this moment is that while it was started by women in September 2022, now you see large sectors of Iran's population joining in men. Um, people from across Iran's many regions and ethnic groups, religious minorities, who recognize that the frustration with Iran's policies domestically are affecting everyone. So I think, um, for example, 2009 was a response to what were perceived as fraudulent election results, and millions of people marched in the streets for that, primarily uh, young people again. But I would say that in some ways, it's a general sense in which this regime is not in step with the population. And part of it is that they are majority of the population is under 35. And the majority of those in power are over 70. Yeah. You know, you mentioned different ethnic groups coming together. One of the things that I've noted over the last few months is people starting to talk about Masa Amini as Gina, like her uh, the, the Kurdish name that her family uh, gave her that uh, Iranian authorities did not let her um, sort of uh, take on. Can you talk a little bit about the, that, that kind of ethnic unity being perhaps um, a greater 
uh, piece of these protests than, than previous ones. Absolutely. And I think um, the response of the government, for example, to the people of Kurdish Iran has been more severe than anywhere else. And in part, um, they're signaling that uh, their unhappiness, not only with the symbolism of a Kurdish young woman who died at the hands of the morality police, but also that it's a response to the autonomy, the struggle for autonomy of a place like Kurdistan. So it has this resonance um, for ethnic minorities that have been um, structurally excluded from either the economic situation or the political situation. So the, the highest price has been paid to the people of the Kurdish parts of Iran and also in Baluchistan, where the military has come in and cracked down and arbitrarily killed protesters in larger numbers than even in Tehran. Um, and I think that kind of unity is what's made this movement a more sustained movement. Um, and I want to kind of go back to the question that you posed about have the protests died? No, I don't think they've died out. I think they've morphed. And I think they've morphed in a way that sometimes our media doesn't mm -hmm. know how to capture it because we're looking for the, you know, the street protest. Yes, of, yeah, yes. Right, and right. it's more complicated. Iran is a complex society. But I think that um, the, the intersectionality of this movement mm -hmm. and the sort of cross pollination of groups that are frustrated and rising up collectively in unison is unique it in makes this its moment. Strength. Yeah. We're talking with Bay Area Iranians about the protests that began in September after the in-custody death of Masamini and the state of the movement for change now. This show is produced by Ryan Heshmadi, a second-generation Iranian-American and a sophomore at Saratoga High School. This is, of course, part of KQED's Youth Takeover Week. We're also joined by Shide, a student who moved here from Iran a couple of years ago. Persis Karim, a poet, essayist, and director for the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University, who you just heard. And we'd love to hear from you. What are your hopes for the movement now? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786, or how have you participated? You can email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are joined by a panel of Bay Area Iranians who are talking about the protests that began in September and the state of the movement for change now. This show is produced by Ryan Heshmadi, a second-generation Iranian-American, sophomore at Saratoga High School. This is across KQED 
uh, Youth Takeover, where we work with young people to get them onto the air and get their ideas uh, turned into uh, realities like this show. We are also joined by Shide, a student here who moved from Iran a couple of years ago. That's uh, not her real name. It's a name that we're using to protect her identity. She's family back home, etc. We're also joined by Persis Karim, poet, essayist, and director for the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. We would love to hear from you. How have your hopes for reform changed as time has passed? What are your questions about what's happening with the movement at this time? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. We want to add another voice to our conversation. Pantea Karimi is an Iranian-American multidisciplinary artist and teacher. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Pate, you recently addressed the protests in a work called Cube is Not Geometric. Can you just describe for us sort of what the work looks like so people have a sense of that? Yeah, sure. Um, the death of Mahsa Amini and the uprising uh, by Iranian women um, took me to a very dark emotional place. And um, Mahsa Amini died uh, when she was 22 at uh, morality police custody. The first time I was detained by morality police, I was Mm. 21. Mm. So I think the incident um, resurfaced um, a lot of difficult um, memories from that day. And um, I, I have to say, I actually became really depressed for a few days when I heard about her death. Um, So I was compelled to respond, and she died in September 2022. This is the time I was working uh, on a solo exhibition um, at Mercury 20 Gallery in Oakland. Um, And I thought that the exhibition concept had um, enough room to expand and to pivot Mm. um, this emotional response. Yeah. And... How did you end up doing it? Like, what was the sort of physical form of the response? Yeah, the opening of the exhibition was um, in late October 2022. On October 6th, I asked one of my friends um, to donate her hair to a piece that I wanted to make. Mm. I only had um, two weeks to (laughs) respond and to create an additional uh, piece that uh, would fit in the exhibition. The exhibition was called Cube is Not Geometric. It was an investigation of cube in both uh, religious and uh, scientific um, contexts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she cut her hair and I put um, a video of her on Instagram, which resulted in other women in my community, in the Bay Area, and actually beyond um, in San Diego. showing their desire, they wanted to participate in the project. Oh, wow. Um, Persis, you actually participated too, didn't you? You cut your hair. Yes. Uh, I cut my hair, and uh, we were at a an event in Berkeley, and several of us ended up cutting our hair, and it became part of the installation of in this cube. And, you know, it, it now feels so far away, but it was a, 
a very symbolically important gesture that women around the world were participating in, including in high offices. Uh, so I think it was a representative moment of uh, women's solidarity around the globe. So it was wonderful to participate and wonderful to see how Pontia used that. Yeah, I, I want to add here that um, cutting or pulling hair publicly has a cultural importance in Iran. It's a sign of grief and it's a sign mm. of protest. Uh, so I wanted to use that moment and create a piece that had that symbolically as part of it. So ultimately, um, these volunteer women, and I have to say mainly non-Iranians, cut their hair and I filmed them. And they had also messages of solidarity mm. and um, support for Iranian women. Um, I prepared uh, these pieces of hair in my studio and I created um, a cube that was hollow. It was a structure that you could see inside of it. It was a reference to uh, Kaaba in Mecca, mm -hmm. the Muslim sacred site. And inside the cube, I put shattered glass pieces and I mm -hmm. pinned these hair pieces to the glass as a symbol of pain, struggle, and grief these Iranian women and girls have been enduring for the past 44 years. And Dr. Karim, you were a part of this. How did it feel to physically make that cut? You know, it's a chomp. It's a physical act. What did that feel like to you? Was it freeing? Well, I mean, hair is a part of the body. And in some ways, it wasn't hard to do at all um, because in some ways, it's a small price to pay when you think about what in what people in Iran and women specifically have endured. And I think the other part about it is um, this idea that you're collectively participating in some symbol that hopefully makes other people who might not have any connection to Iran wake up and sort of suggest like, oh, bodily autonomy, that means something to me. And I, I sort of want to draw it back to our own U.S. context. Bodily autonomy is also under mm. attack here, particularly for women. So I think there was a moment also where women were finding that gesture of cutting their hair and protesting along with the women of Iran as a incredibly important idea that this is a global movement. This isn't just about women in Iran. Yeah. You know, uh, Pantea, your work has dealt kind of ob obliquely with political themes in the past and, you know, tried to reinterpret Iranian history through your own experiments, this, you know, interest in medieval botany and geometry. How did it feel to respond kind of so directly and immediately to this intense political moment? Yeah, it's a very good question because my work, yeah, collectively highlights Iran's uh, visual culture through these uh, research of um, me medieval, you know, uh, medicinal botany and medieval geometry. However, as an Iranian woman, my life has been intertwined with this political, religious and um, societal issues. Um, in some ways, um, I cannot separate my mindset from the personal experiences that are part of this moment. Mm -hmm. Every time I research, 
um, I look at uh, the subject um, mainly politically um, and, and religiously to just see if there is an angle I have forgotten. <laughs> is there anything that I'm not actually considering? Coming from Iran makes everything uh, become kind of complicated with those moments. Mm. And I cannot separate it anymore from my psyche, yeah. I guess. You know, uh, a video of your work also went pretty big on social media, as I, as I understand it. How did you see the relationship between your work and this, you know, sense of virality? Yeah, I um, I'm an artist who uses who use um, different you know tools and different forms and techniques. I come from graphic design background and um, I went to the fine arts and uh, printmaking. So my work is a so to speak is a multimedia work, and I use different tools. I do see um, social media as another tool, and it has features that you can mass share some content, mm-hmm. some ideas. Uh, it's it's a tool, and mm-hmm. I used it during that time. It was appropriate to use it mm-hmm. um, to echo Iranian uh, women's voice, their message, and um, that's all I see it. Mm-hmm. It's just a tool for me. Shadet, you how did you end up using social media during this time? Was it sort of like your core connection to what was happening? Um, yeah, it wasn't my core connection because I, well, I guess it was when the internets were so bad that I couldn't connect with my family. Mm. But um, I think it was it played a very important role for me because um, we all kept sharing um, news about what was going on and just um, reflecting on what we thought should be done next, what was important. So it became um, this uh, way of just all of us connecting and amplifying, especially the us in the diaspora, amplifying the uh, voices of, because the people didn't have internet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it was very important. Well, I know that also there are some, you know, like in many protest movements, some songs or pieces of art become very significant. Um, Ryan, do you want to talk about uh, a song that for for you ended up being kind of a part of your connection to this movement? Uh, yeah, it was called Baraye by Shervin Hajipur, and this spread through social media. That's how uh, I got it. I, I saw it. And it was actually awarded a Grammy for the best song for social change, which Jill Biden awarded. And it, it sends chills down your spine because these are experiences that you know people were feeling 40 years ago, uh, the people in the community around you, and people are still feeling those. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's listen for a little bit and then we're going to keep talking about it. That was Shervin Hajipur's song, Baraye. Uh, and, you know, Shade, I was wondering, you know, for those of us who don't speak the language, um, 
what are the sort of experiences that are being described here, right? This is sort of like uh, because or, or for, right, the song title. Um, yes, let me give, give a little bit of context. Um, after Massa died and people started to go in the streets, um, this uh, incredible movement happened on social media, and especially on Twitter, where people were sharing all of the reasons they had for coming into the streets and risking so much because they were being treated brutally by the government forces. Uh, so uh, they started to count all the reasons, uh, as you said, Baraya means um, because of or for. So um, they like some of the things that they were um, saying were like because of um, the the future, the future of uh, children for our sisters, for um, uh, let's see, for the environment, for the this like polluted air that we're having, um, for the um, the. Uh, species that are being extinct and and so on and so forth. Mm. That's such a... Uh, for those who uh, want to check it out, there's some pretty good translations out there of the different um, kind of s- situations. I mean, for your, for you, Ryan, I mean, when you read these, the, the, you're connecting to the different pieces that you've heard about um, over time in the Bay Area Iranian community, right? These Each line kind of giving you a different piece of that. And I think that was what was so important, right? This song was taking all these different ideas, all these frustrations in Iran and putting them together to sort of represent why there's this movement, why we have a slogan, women, life, freedom. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a moment where you're like, okay, this is getting serious. This is uh, where we're all banding together because that's what happened in 1979. And it seemed like that was happening again. Mm. Let's take our first uh, caller here. Let's go to uh, Hamid in Orinda. Welcome, Hamid. Hey, Hamid, can you hear me? Oh, yes, I can. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Go ahead. I was uh, a bit pessimistic about the whole thing. Uh, I've been here for a long time. But um, I'm not sure if you topic you want to touch. But do you think you will ever have a democracy in a Muslim country? Yeah. Hamid, um, good question. Uh, Paris, why don't you uh, take this one? Okay. Um, I think it's... We can ask the same question about any country. Um, is democracy possible? Uh, and I think it's a it's a great experiment for any country that has um, religion intertwined with the state mm. to actually be able to articulate a democratic path. And I think I, I just would argue that we're struggling with the same idea here in the United States. Um, so... You know, it's a it's a big question, and I certainly think Iran is no model for democracy and religion, um, whether it's Muslim or Christian or Jewish, I think is really irrelevant. I think the idea is that democracy requires the participation of all people in a society, and as long as there is efforts to exclude people, it is not possible. And and I think that's why uh, people in Iran are rising up so vehemently, because they feel like it's a a very anti-democratic state. Yeah. Let's get to another call here. Eid in Berkeley. Welcome. Yeah. Good morning. What I have to say is really, really, really important. Hijab or covering the head or covering anything is not Islamic. It is Ottoman. It happened over a thousand years after the advent of Islam by the Ottomans, who were con- trying to control her, their harem women, slave women. They were mostly white women from Europe and the Middle East. 
It never happened in Islam. Prophet Muhammad's wife was his boss, and she dressed any way she wanted. One, one example, I grew up in Egypt. In 1950s, 1948, there was bikini competition at the Cairo University. All my classmates at Cairo University dressed, men's skirt, nobody covered their hair, beautiful. I'm going to send you an email. Also, if you go online, there is a, there is a speech by President Nasser, whether you like him or not, he was a great man, mockering the hijab. He actually, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood came to him and said, you have to impose uh, the hijab in every Egyptian woman. He said, Mr. So-and-so, I know your, your daughter is in the University of Cairo Medicine School, but she does not wear hijab. Not only that, she has been seen in miniskirt. I know that because she, my daughter goes to the same school. And Mr. So-and-so, if he can't control your daughter, how would you want me to control 30 million Egyptian women? Yeah. They- this is nonsense. What's happening in Iran and happening in Saudi Arabia is really just... just totally bad and also disrespect to women. Women in every way for 5,000 years are equal as men. They have all rights and they are should be treated as beautiful, equal, not just a piece of flesh good enough for sex and babies. I'm disgusted with both this horrible mm-hmm. regime in Iran and the horrible regime in Saudi Arabia. They told this, they just put us in very bad light. Please everybody, Google. Also, Egypt has Thanks so much for that. Uh... The last 100 years. For that perspective, no, I appreciate the perspective on quality. We'll come back to it after the the break. Some of the um, com- components of that uh, that comment. We're talking with Bay Area Iranians about the protests that began in September after the death of Masa Amini in the custody of the morality police in Iran. This show was put together by Ryan Hashmati, a second-generation Iranian-American sophomore at Saratoga High School, who produced today's show as part of KQED's Youth Takeover Week. We're also joined by Pantea Karimi, an Iranian-American multidisciplinary artist and teacher, Persis Karim, a poet, essayist, and director for the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University, and Shide, who, it's not her real name, she moved here from Iran for education a couple of years ago. We'd love to hear from you. What uh, have the protests meant for and to you? You can give us a call. Number is 866-733-6786. What's a way you participated in the movement? The number again, 866-733-6786. Email to forum at kqed.org and all the social things. It's KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the protests in 
Iran that began in September with members of the Bay Area Iranian community. Show put together by Ryan Heshmati, sophomore at Saratoga High School, joined by Shadeh, who moved here from Iran for education a couple years ago. Persis Karim, poet, essayist, and director for the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State, and Pantea Karimi, an Iranian-American multidisciplinary artist. Before the break, we were talking, uh, we had a, a caller who wanted to talk about the kind of role of uh, hijab and its relationship to, to Islam and, and uh, political power. Um, should I have, what's your perspective on this? Um, yeah, I just think that it's important to remember that uh, the protests that are going on in Iran aren't about hijab, the concept of hijab. Um, it, they're about, uh, co- like, they are protests against compulsory hijab. And uh, the movement is about bodily autonomy. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to say that that's important. Um. And I also think um, it's important to understand that when the Islamic Republic was established in 1979, it was a rejection of the West, and they saw themselves as kind of reinventing a new national identity, utilizing the Shia ideology and basically creating a velayate faqi, which is governance through Sharia law. Um, And one of the ways that they distinguished their present from the past was to say, we believe these things are important to our national identity and forcing women to wear the hijab was one of them. Um, And I also think it's important to understand that women have been pushing back against this for 44 years. So depending on who's in power, some women started wearing lipsticks. Some women had a shock of blonde hair sticking out of their hijab. While these protests are more visible to us, women have been engaged in acts of everyday resistance for 44 years. And it is fundamentally about bodily autonomy, much in the way that we see the attack on abortion rights as an attack on bodily autonomy. And I remember um, the first time my mother had to wear hijab, like it was almost two years after um, the uh, 1979 revolution. And um, it was a shock to her that that was going to become part of her daily life. Wow. And they also asked uh, children to wear hijab. And um, these are all for controlling women. And um, they're just creating a coercive force on this Iranian society. So it's totally different, you know, kind of idea that we are talking about here. Yeah. It's also not just about the physical hijab. It's, you know, there, there are regulations about what professions women can um, conduct themselves in. So women cannot be judges. Uh, women have to work in segregated spaces. That prevents women from economically being equals with men in just about every facet of society. Women, for example, the testimony of a woman is less than the testimony of a man in a court case. All those things have a psychological impact on women's ability to imagine themselves both being equal and to have economic parity with men. Mm. We've got another uh, caller I want to bring in here, MJ in San Mateo. Welcome, MJ. Yes, thank you for taking my call. 
Oh no, MJ, come back. We want your perspective. Okay, call call back. We will uh, we'll put you on hold, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, to get you there. Um, what one uh, of our listeners wants to talk about? Kind of get deeper into where the Iranian government sort of legitimacy and power, such as it is, um, comes from. Uh, writes and say several panelists said the protests are more complicated than we see in media coverage. I assume the government is also more complicated than we see, and I wonder what the panelists can say about how the government gets its power and what are some things that are likely to change so more power is from the people. Um, well, I think. Legitimacy often comes through physical power, coercive violence, state violence. And I think this is a, a state that engages in regular coercive violence against its own population. So certainly the morality police are one facet of that. Um, censoring journalists and imprisoning journalists is another. Um, I think legitimacy is a a word you should put in quotes, because if you think about um, how states conduct themselves, some states are much more popular or they're much more governed by a distribution of power. This is a state that concentrates power in the hands of a very few, and it's embedded in religious ideology. And ideology is, of course, one of the ways uh, the Islamic Republic derives its legitimacy to see itself as um, executing laws and governance through Sharia law, um, and specifically through this idea of velayat um, But I think state violence is has been shown again and again uh, in terms of the way that Iran gains so-called legitimacy um, by intimidating its own population. Um, stifling dissent. Um, of course, in political affairs, the Islamic Republic vets candidates for election. So that's how it gains its uh, political legitimacy is by preventing candidates who they deem inappropriate from running for political office. All right, we've got MJ back on the line. MJ, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, of course. Hi, do you hear me this time? Yes, we can. We can. Go ahead. Okay, great. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I wanted to um, add uh, a bit of uh, some kind of food for thought, which is the premise of the caller gentleman who had said that Islamic law doesn't really require a woman to have a hijab. Uh, and I would say that it would be really integral to have some experts who can speak to that. My personal experience having been born there, raised there, amongst the people coming and going and seeing in other Middle Eastern countries that have Islamic law embedded in their, um, the way to govern society, is that it absolutely becomes a requirement. Um, and so I, I don't know that true that democracy and religion um, are difficult cohorts, but especially with women's rights and the way... Islamic law has been interpreted in the past 50 years, you know, I think that it, it's, it's very difficult for me to look the other way and think that it's the same as any other um, uh, religious uh, expression in the world currently. And again, I think it would be 
terrific to really delve into that as a topic mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. people who really speak to it from a historical perspective as opposed to different people just speaking and then having that be kind of um, a jumping place. Like, oh, yes, of course, it depends on how you interpret it. Well, you know, it's being interpreted in a very specific way for a very long time when causing a great deal of suffering for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people for about 40 years right now. And that can't be taken lightly, I think. Thank you, MJ, for for that perspective. Um, she said, "Do you want to talk about the hopes that you have, kind of going forward? Um, now that we, you know, have been in this for for quite some time, and we've had the particular applications of religious law, the particular political situation um, on the ground. Like, how how are you? What would you like to see happen at this point?" Um, I think uh, a lot of us um, are very hopeful that um, it changes on the horizon. And um, I think something that I've been hearing a lot is that the revolution has already happened. It's inside everyone's minds and under people's skins. And um, it's not a small change that like uh, women aren't wearing the, the veil anymore. Uh, I think... Everyone has changed, and it's just a matter of time. I just hope that uh, like the change happens before uh, so many people pay such high prices for it. And you talked about that big change with hijab. How big a risk are women taking? Because I think it's important for Bay Area audiences to understand, you know, that's a real decision to make. Yeah, the stakes are very high, um, even though they are like risking this. But what they're risking is that they can be detained. Um, their um, rights are being taken away. Um, they are being harassed on the streets all the time. Not to mention that um, there's always the the danger of acid throwings, and th- these are all violences that has been uh, happening for the last forty years. So it's not a. They are being very courageous. It's not that uh, oh, like they don't have to wear the veil anymore. Uh, they are risking because they know that it's this symbolic gesture. It's um, it's a sort of fighting for them. Uh, so yeah, they all sorts of things uh, can can happen to them. Do you think there is fear in the Iranian community here, even about speaking out against regime because people have you know family connections and other things? Um, I personally feel like yes, there is a fear. And um, but then the fear we feel here um, is nothing compared to what Iranian people feel inside the country fighting for their freedom. Um, so the fear I felt in the first um, two weeks when I did my own project, uh, posting the videos of women cutting their hair uh, on social media uh, was very unsettling. And I honestly didn't expect that to be harassed or to receive uh, harsh messages about my project. Mm. But um, gradually it goes away because the bravery of Iranian people proceed. Um, Mm. At least that's for me. Uh, Persis, do you think there are um, political differences between what people in the diaspora are hoping for Iran and what a majority of the country might want in inside Iran? 
Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that we have to understand is there there are people who've been outside of Iran for 44 years and more who may not fully grasp what the experience of everyday life is there. And it's very easy for people to sort of say, we should replace this regime with, say, a, a monarchy, because the monarchy was deposed in 79. Um, my feeling is, is that's unrealistic to make those kinds of assumptions, because this is a movement that is governed by young people who are tired of ideology, and they're tired of uh, authoritarianism. And so we don't know exactly what will happen in Iran. We don't know exactly what would replace this regime if it were to go away. And I think that's um, one of the reasons why this movement has been sustained is that it's not governed by ideology. It's hard to identify actual leaders. It's much more of a spontaneous from the ground up as opposed to um, outside ideology. And so there are indeed divisions among people in the diaspora. Some people feel that, that you know, we should get the crown prince uh, Pahlavi, who's been in exile for 45, six years, to go back. Um, there are many people inside of Iran who want to see expressions of solidarity without an imposition of ideas about what should replace this regime. And I think... Um, I want to just give a shout out to some of the young people who are in the diaspora uh, working very hard to try and keep this on the minds and hearts of people through social media. There's an organization like Bay Area for Iran. There's United for Iran, which is another Berkeley-based um, organization um, that are in some ways inspired by what's happening in Iran, but also trying to recognize the limitations of being actors outside. And that's why the, the message has been so much about amplifying the voices of people inside of Iran to make sure that we don't impose our view of what should happen. Um, and I think that's a process. It's hard to to live with a process that might be prolonged and painful. But I think that's the only way Iran will succeed and and find some kind of democratic future. And Shida, I was just wondering, so you hear within this area, there is support for the Pahlavis and the, there are these royalists. Within Iran, where does the support lie? Are, are people talking about, you know, bringing back the monarchy? Um, they... Uh, I think a lot less. They believe in the monarchy a lot less than the people in diaspora. Uh, they just don't want to go back in time. They they want something new and bold. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, Pantea. If you have you know listened to this um, discussion, uh, where do you see your art going now? Like, how do you, are you going to continue making work on this line? Or have you, like, has it changed you permanently as an artist, you think? It has. I actually didn't expect um, uh, this movement to affect me so deeply <laughs> the way it did. It has changed me. And I'm actually um, in the process of creating another exhibition um, that follows the ideas from the last fall exhibition at Mercury 20 Gallery. And um, I'm also just looking at um, some of these um, kind of outcomes and responses I had. 
mm-hmm. uh, to my show last year and kind of trying to use that momentum and take it to another level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is important to, for me, it is very important to sustain the momentum and to be the uh, their voice and to show my care and support and show that the Iranian women and girls who are fighting are not forgotten. I also want to add here that a lot of people say Iranian women are victims. They're not. They're victimized, but they're not victims. They're fighters. They're brave. It is very hard to live in Iran day to day under that um, difficult force of control. Mm-hmm. And as a woman who lived in Iran, I grew up in Iran um, under the theocracy. I want to channel all of those emotions back. It's very hard, mm-hmm. but this is something um, I need to do. Yeah. Hey, Ren, how do you think you've been changed by this last, you know, six, seven months? I think that Growing up in the community, there have always been many voices who are more optimistic about change than actually within Iran. And I think hearing that that optimism is finally getting into Iran and Iran is becoming something people care about more and more with that song, you know, Jill Biden talking about that on stage, Mm -hmm. that means there's there's a real focus. And I think that's where hope is going to come from. Mm -hmm. We've been talking with... Bay Area Iranians about the protests that began in September. The State of the Movement for Change Now at this show was produced by Ryan Hashmati as part of KQED's Youth Takeover Week. He's a sophomore uh, sophomore at Saratoga High School. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you. Great job. Great job. We've also been joined by Shide, who moved here from Iran for education a couple of years ago. Thank you so much for providing your perspective. Thank you so much for having me. Also joined by Persis Karim, a poet, essayist, and director for the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. Woman, life, freedom. And we've also been joined by Pantea Karimi, an Iranian-American multidisciplinary artist and teacher. Really recommend you check out her website, which has amazing um, uh, images of her work and videos. Thank you so much for joining us, Pantea. Thank you. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host, my Marzerati, Guy Marzerati. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.